Amen. Amen. So th- this past week, just as Pastor Moses was talking about, uh, we had Easter. Uh, I hope no one missed that. And I trust you had had a good time, had a good holiday. Uh, we had plenty going on around here. You know, we had our Good Friday concert, and we had Palm Sunday in the park with a great Easter egg hunt to get everyone involved, get the community involved. Uh, and then we had Easter Sunday. You know, we had a great setup on the stage and everything. Uh, so as you could tell with all the goings on, uh, Easter's kind of a big deal around here. Uh, some people compare Easter to uh, the Super Bowl for pastors, you know. Uh, it's around Easter time when everything is, gets full contact. Uh, and uh, people, people want to hear the gospel. People are seeking, seeking after God. Now, you might not have known, but the week after Easter, the Sunday after Easter, also has a title. And they had me preach specifically for this day. Uh, it is called Low Sunday because of this day's relative insignificance to the other Sunday. Ha, 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 ha. That was a joke. So... <laughs> <laughs> this is where we laugh, right? So low Sunday, uh, everything's off the stage, but we're going to go ahead and go for it. Uh, the Easter season gives us a springboard into understanding much about discipleship and much about uh, Jesus. And in all seriousness, I'm sure we all encountered people who were much more willing to talk about the gospel, much more willing to speak about Jesus just because of the time of the year and all across the country, all across the world. Pastors and Christians are able to lead people to God, and it's a great thing uh, because people truly are asking and people are seeking out. Now, that's, that's the good side. Uh, all too often, however, uh, these, these decisions or these conversions are quick, uh, and we go from there, and then nothing really changes. Perhaps some people get involved in church for a bit, and then uh, even though they were what we thought was the perfect seeker, uh, looking after eternal life and looking how to get connected to God, they just kind of fall out. Uh, they just leave. And this, this, is, this is uncomfortable for us. You know, this is odd. Uh, we thought we did our part. Uh, we thought we had done enough to get these people in. Um, and then uh, some people just don't, just don't stay. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus encountered a similar situation in Luke 18, verse 18 through 30, with a young man who seemed to be, uh, seemed to be the, perfect, the perfect seeker. Someone who wanted to see God and wanted to find God in their life. So let's go ahead and look there and see how Jesus handles a similar situation. So we've got our text here. We'll start at verse 18. The unit of thought is that paragraph, so we'll go all the way to verse 30. Pastor Dave's not in here, but there are far too many words on this screen. So I think he's kind of tweaking out whenever he sees this. But verse 18 says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. 
And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come eternal life. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities you give us to come, Lord, to discover what it is you're communicating to us. Jesus, I pray that you would be with us in this time, God, opening our hearts and opening our minds so that we can truly ask you what it is that you want us to take away from this. God, guide us. Lord, be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the man Jesus encounters uh, seems to be the perfect seeker. He seems to be the crystal clear scenario that we all want when we encounter someone who maybe wants to know about Christianity, who maybe wants to grow to know Christ, right? Uh, so if Jesus, right, as long as he didn't fail Evangelism 101, he's going to bag this guy in a couple minutes, get him to say the sinner's prayer and be on his way because, right, that's how you do it. Uh, so this guy, right, he's already asked the question. There's no footwork Jesus has to do here, right? Jesus doesn't have to slip in some weird comment about, well, a man lived 2,000 years ago well, because Jesus was that man. But um, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to beat around the bush to get to the gospel. This man came to Jesus asking about eternal life, asking about God. This seems to be the best case scenario, but Jesus handles it a little bit differently than we might have thought. Uh, now, why, why did Jesus turn this guy away, right? Throughout the New Testament, it seems like rather than making the gospel easier or making it uh, more accessible or tearing down barriers so people can get to the gospel, Jesus seems to be throwing those barriers up. He seems to be making it more and more difficult for people actually to get to him, right? He seems to make it harder, right? He doesn't just tell this guy, repeat these words after me. He tells him, uh, you got to sell everything you own. You got to give it up and follow me. And we're sitting here thinking, like, what's wrong with you, Jesus? Just get him to say the prayer and then we'll de deal with all that. Uh, so, so the question is, who has it wrong? Uh, who has it backwards, uh, us or Jesus? So this is, this is where we're at today. This is what we're examining. Now, when you look at the question itself and when you look at the man, one thing that Jesus saw was that the question itself was broken. The question that the man asked Jesus and how he approached Jesus was broken, broken in all the wrong ways. Now, to understand who's, uh, the question, you often have to look at who's asking the question because that's incredibly important. Uh, so if someone, a sweet old lady, comes and asks me where the women's restroom is, she's asking me one thing. And if a creepy old man asks me the same question, he's asking another thing. And I will answer <laughs> accordingly. Right? Uh, oftentimes, the person asking the question is incredibly important. And we know some things about this man. We know he was a ruler. Uh, the word seems to denote that he was a ruler in the synagogue, right? He had some spiritual authority in his time. He was given a position of authority over others inside of the synagogue, right? So he's kind of head honcho, at least has a high position in society. Now, some of the other gospel accounts, this story, it's not a parable. It uh, seems to be an account that Jesus actually had. Uh, Matthew and Mark and in, also have it. And in Mark's account, this man actually runs up to Jesus and falls on his knees in front of Jesus, uh, asking him this question, right? This seems to be nice, right? He's obviously recognizing something about Jesus. He falls on his knees in front of him, the perfect seeker. 
Yet again, now he's also a rich guy who maybe would be great to have in the church, right? His tithes would help us out with quite a bit, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, but moreover, not only did he have money, that money during this time was seen as a blessing and approval from God. This guy had God's approval in the eyes of those around him. He was doing everything right because God continued to bless him, because God continued to give him money. Now, this this isn't how we view it today, and this is incorrect, but this is how people viewed it during the time. So the perfect man comes up, someone who has God's approval, falls in front of Jesus, recognizes him as good teacher, and wants to know, how do I inherit eternal life? Now, he even seems to use the correct words, right? The words of his question are even correct. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's some recognition here that he doesn't have it. He's not making the assumption that I already have eternal life. Jesus, would you please pad my ego and tell me that I've already done what I need? That doesn't seem to be the case. Rather, this man is approaching Jesus saying, how do I gain eternal life? Now, the important question is, what is it that the man didn't have? What is it that he knew he didn't have? So we have to understand his conception of what eternal life is. Is it just uh, life forever? Is it about quantity of life? Is it life as we live it on earth forever? We just never have to die? Or is it about quality of life? Is it about the perfect quality of life? Living a life as God lives it. That being a, living a life in community with God. Now that's a type of life that has peace joy and contentment and that life goes on forever but it truly creates a sense of peace inside of you and that seems to be more what this man lacked so it wasn't about a quantity of life it was about his own quality of life now this is quite the statement a religious leader comes out into the town square out in public to say in front of people i lack commitment and joy contentment and joy in my life pretty bold statement Pretty bold thing to say in front of everyone. He seems to be on the right path. Now, uh, John 17, 3 tells us, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This, this is a question about his relationship with God. He had some sense of emptiness inside of him. It wasn't just that he thought he might not live forever. This was that he's lacking something in terms of his own quality of life. It's about being fundamentally connected to God. Now, the result of this eternal life that he was after is a never-ending life, but not dying is not the point. It's about having that peace and contentment. Now, he's on the right track here. He has the correct words in his question. Now, he's also on the right track about Jesus. He says the right things about Jesus. He calls Jesus good teacher, and this is not, this is not just some common phrase of flattery that you say to a teacher. This word doesn't show up in Jewish literature. No one calls a rabbi good, right? That word is reserved for God and God alone. And Jesus recognizes this. Jesus recognizes this and responds, why do you call me good? Only God is good. No one is good but God and God alone. So the man sees some connection between Jesus and God. Now let's take a sidebar and draw out what this means, that God alone is good. What, what could that mean? Uh, consider this. If God does not exist, then good does not exist. Say it another way. If God does not exist, then there is no purpose or meaning in life. Quite the bold statement. Uh, it might get an atheist riled up. But this, this statement is that all authority of good, 
all authority of objective morality stems from God and God alone. If it's the case that there is not a law giver who has authority, then anything that we think is good, anything that we think is morally good, has no basis for it. It's just our own subjective opinion. It's just, there's no reason to think that something is good and something might be bad. In a system where God does not exist, consider that throwing a rock into the ocean is the moral equivalent of throwing a small child into the same ocean. And that's because these two things are just composed of matter, just composed of atoms. They're arranged in different ways. Instead of something bad happening or something good happening, because there's no objective law, it's just matter interacting in different ways. It's just different. Things just are. Nothing is good or bad. So when Jesus says that only God is good, he's recognizing that the basis for all objective morality, the basis for knowing that something is good and something is evil stems from the authority of God and God alone. The basis for knowing that good exists, the basis for knowing that we can see evil in our history stems from God. And when we deny him, we lose the foundation and authority for that completely. The young man recognizes that Jesus had a connection, right? He doesn't necessarily say, Jesus, you are God, but he recognizes some sort of connection. He seems to be on the right track. Now, the problem with all of this, he has the words correct, but the words are disconnected from the heart. His words have no connection with his heart whatsoever. The system he was working in, the system he assumed, the religion that he's practiced, wasn't meant to give eternal life. It was a works righteousness system or legalism where he followed the law and the law alone. That was not meant to give him eternal life. The law was not meant to be a staircase by which he attained righteousness. Instead, the law was only meant to show that he was sinful. The following exchange reveals a lot. After this man asks the question, Jesus goes on to respond with the law itself. And this is likely facetious or sarcastic, saying, well, you seem to know all the commandments. Uh, he points out that the, the man seems to know what's going on and goes on to list the law to him. Now, the man responds that he's upheld all of these. Probably, probably not saying that he's never done anything bad, but that on the whole, he's followed the law. On the whole, he's a good person. This offers quite the mirror for ourselves. This offers a mirror to each and every one of us. Now, it looks different today. No one in their right mind would say, I've followed all the laws because we know not to say that. Uh, though we, we're versed enough in the words that we need to say to come to church. Uh, but consider that it might look like this. Consider that when someone says, I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to get back in church and start doing the right thing. They're on the same path as this man. They've started in the wrong place. They've started with themselves and they've started with their own steps rather than falling at the foot of the cross. When you begin with your own actions, when you begin to rely on yourself to achieve some sort of righteousness so that you can get to Jesus, you've started off at the wrong place. You've started off by relying on yourselves. Now, there's a flip side to this. We do it ourselves. Oftentimes, we do it to other people. Oftentimes, we will tell people, you need to get back in church. Trust me, church is a great thing. You need to be in church. But church can't save you. Religion cannot save you. A truly repentant heart falls at the foot of the cross, understanding that it is sinful. Now, when someone comes into the church and they aren't all polished up, 
they don't have it figured out, telling them that they need to start doing what's right is the wrong way to approach the situation. Don't you dare tell a seeker or someone who has just found Christ that they aren't doing what is right. They have started at the foot of the cross, and that's where they need be. You take their hand and you walk with them. You do not push them down. The sole purpose of the law, the reason the law was given, was to reveal our own sinfulness. The law was there to point us to our need for a savior. Consider Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is there so we can know we're sinning, right? The law is not a staircase. The law is better shown as a sword that is meant to slay us. The law is meant there to slaughter. It's meant to leave us bloody and beaten and bruised so that we know we can't do it. It's meant to show us that we can't even stand in the face of the law. It's meant to show us that we are not righteous. That is the purpose of the law. The law is there to show us that we need Jesus. Now in this man's heart, in this man's heart, the law had not had its full effect. The law has a huge purpose in the heart of a seeker. The law is there to show them that they cannot do it on their own. To show us that we can't do it on our, on our own. And if the law has not done this work, then grace has no space in their life. The grace has no room to work because they see no need for it. Now, there's two theologians, right? Uh, one of these theologians, old and dead, uh, he lived a life, grew up in the church. Uh, you know, he lived probably a relatively good life. I would imagine most of them would have considered him a good person. The other theologian, uh, he lived a pretty debauched life. Uh, he had illegitimate children in various continents uh, and lived a sinful upbringing. He didn't follow God. The difference between these two men, and I, I'm, not, I'm not glorifying sin at all, is that the first one eventually became a heretic. He saw no need for grace. He saw no need for Jesus to pay for our sin. Rather, he wanted us to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and stop sinning. St. Augustine, the second one, Augustine, you might have heard, had illegitimate children and had a full understanding of his need for grace. Had a complete understanding that he needed the cross and couldn't do it on his own because he had lived that life. Because he laid slaughtered at the foot of the law. Because the law had completed its purpose in his life. Now, Jesus, as the exchange goes on, points to the law. The man's heart is revealed, and Jesus asks for something more, right? Uh, instead of doing it how we might do it, Jesus gets a fat F in Evangelism 101 and uh, throws up another barrier in the man's way. He says, oh, you want eternal life? Well, jump these hurdles, right? Uh, he's, not, he's not doing it how we think we're supposed to do it. And this is consistent throughout the New Testament. Jesus isn't doesn't seem to be seeker-friendly, right? He doesn't seem to be inviting people in, which is, which is odd, right? Which is a bit uncomfortable for us. But after the ruler tells Jesus that he has kept the commandments, Jesus says that there's one more thing he has to do. And he tells him to go and sell all of his possessions and give them to the poor. Now, this sounds bad, right? Jesus, what are you doing? It sounds like you're endorsing the Communist Party and just moving on 
uh, as Chairman Jesus. But uh, it's actually much worse than it seems, right? It's not just sell all your stuff. What Jesus is asking the man to do is isolate himself from everyone that he knows. He's asking him to isolate himself from his family and abandon his family relationships. The ways that wealth was managed during this time was that wealth belonged to the entire family. This man controlled the wealth and provided for everyone in his family, his entire extended family. Now, when Jesus told him to sell everything, he would have been disowned. He wouldn't have just had to sleep on the couch, right? It's not like his wife makes him sleep on the couch situation because he sold the couch, right? He sold everything, and he is wholly disowned from his family. He loses all of those family relationships. So it's not just the case that Jesus is saying wealth is bad, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is asking him to deny himself. And this is the consistent message throughout the Old Testament. Deny your wealth, deny your relationships, and deny your own life. Take up your cross and follow me. The cross is not a metaphor here. He's literally saying, give up your life and recognize that you will die for me. Give up everything that you have. Now, it's important to note that Jesus is not saying that wealth is inherently bad. Rather, it's our relationship to that wealth that Jesus is concerned with. We have several good examples of wealthy men. Consider Zacchaeus later on in the Gospel of Luke who, who was able to keep his wealth, but he had a generous heart with it. He responded with generosity. Having money is not a bad thing. How you relate to that money is of the utmost importance. However, now, as Jesus calls us to deny all worldly things, as he calls this man to deny all worldly things, perhaps a, an important point of reflection is would you do the same thing? What would you do if you were asked this same question, and uh, for the good Christians in the room, it's probably easy to say, I would do it in a heartbeat, right? But I don't believe you. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, this, is, this is a wildly difficult thing to do, right? This is terribly difficult. This, this seems hard, right? I don't want to sell everything I have. I don't have much. I rent a bedroom. There's not much in it, and I don't want to sell what is in there. I just don't want to do this. This is very difficult. I would still like to talk to my family. I don't want them to hate me. Uh, but this is what Jesus is calling us to do. Now, don't start from the position of I need to do this to get to Jesus. Rather, ask Jesus for help in doing this each and every day. When we get up, we look Jesus in the face and say, Jesus, I humbly come before you as a broken sinner who loves the world. I ask that you would change my heart as only you can. I ask that you would begin to work inside of me so that I won't desire the things of this world, so that I won't desire wealth, and so that I won't want this world more than you. Something that's telling for me is uh, thinking about the rapture, right? Sometimes I, I talk to my young adults about this, and the young adults, not mine. Uh, and I say, right, the rapture, if it came, right, part of me feels a little slighted, right? Like, come on, Jesus, I had some stuff I wanted to do. Uh, and I, I think that's telling, a telling problem that I love this world too much, that I am far too satisfied with the things of this world when Christ has set the glory of heaven in front of me. Far too satisfied with the things of this world and far too easily satisfied. Rather than being satisfied with this and allowing my heart to continue on this path, it's important that we take steps towards Christ, that we wake up each and every day and say, tell the world, you cannot have me. Sin, you can't have me. Wealth, you cannot have me because I have seen Jesus Christ this morning. Because I've seen the glory of God. Because I have that same God living inside of me, you cannot have me. That's the fight that we'll face for the rest of our lives. 
That is the struggle that each and every Christian will have to deal with. Now, with this recognition, it seems uh, that Jesus is looking for a type of follower, a certain type of person. He's not looking for quick conversions or notches on his belt or uh, numbers, uh, right? Jesus is true and right no matter who shows up on a Sunday. Uh, Rather, Jesus is looking for people who will truly follow him, who will follow him with everything that they have, who will follow him with all of their heart, mind, and soul. On the fields of Moab in Deuteronomy, where Israel was about to go into the promised land, they renewed their covenant with God. And there, right, it's in the Old Testament, so you would think the concern would be follow the law. Rather, the new covenant created in Deuteronomy 30 was only about turning back to God and repenting. It was about giving God all of their heart, following him, loving him, and giving him all of their soul. This is God's only concern. We can't do it on our own. Rather, God aids us in this. Now, we have an example of a similar situation of a guy in Philippians, uh, the author of Philippians, and he talks about himself in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is the Apostle Paul. He's talking about his life before Christ. He's talking about himself as a Jew. He was the best of the best. He was trained by the best. He was the right ethnicity. He didn't break the laws. He upheld the laws. He killed Christians like any good Jew would. And, right, when someone thought they had a place under the law, when someone thought they had done something good, Paul looked them in the eye and said, I did better. If anyone was to be righteous under the law, it was Paul. And he goes on to deny himself. He starts off in verse 7 and says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. All things that he had, all of his friends, all of his relationships, all of his wealth that he gained from following the law, being a Pharisee, uh, being the Jew of Jews, he counted as rubbish and gave it away in order that I may gain Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And Paul recognized this. Paul counted the cost. The message of Christ is consistent throughout the New Testament, and it's received by those who understand their own sinfulness. It's received by those who understand that they are not righteous, that the law only reveals their sinfulness and shows them to be unable. Now, uncomfortably enough, as the story goes on, Jesus then goes on to point out that salvation is impossible. Salvation is impossible. We can't save ourselves, right? He points this out when he tells the disciples, you know, with wealth, it it seems to be impossible. It's like the camel going through the eye of a needle. And this is not talking about a cord going through the eye of a needle or a camel going through a gate and a wall, right? This is about like some giant humped horse thing going through a small sewing needle. It is literally impossible. That's the point. Jesus was no stranger to hyperbole, and that's what he's using here. He's just pointing out that you cannot save yourself. He announces how difficult it's going to be for the wealthy to save themselves, and this is odd solely because the wealthy, if anyone was going to save themselves, it was the wealthy, right? The wealthy seemed to be doing what was right. They had the blessings of God. They had God on their side who continued to give to them. Why would they not be saved? 
why would it be more difficult for the wealthy than the poor? Right? This, is, this is a question that Peter's asking. If they can't be saved, how can we be saved? Jesus' response is quite amazing. He tells them that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Only God can save you. Only appealing to the righteousness of Christ will save you. What we do is nothing in the eyes of God. Rather, the only hope we have is appealing to Christ's righteousness that's imputed to us, that's given to us. When we stand in front of God, it's not our rap sheet that's held up to God so that we're judged. Rather, it is the rap sheet of Christ Jesus who lived a perfect life so that we could have that righteousness used on our behalf. Only then, only then are we able to gain this eternal life. Now, those who sacrifice are rewarded, right? Jesus goes on to say, and Peter even responds and says, well, we gave up everything, right? They might have only just had some boats and fishnets, but they gave up their families and they left. Uh, they gave up everything they had, and Jesus responds that they will be rewarded, that those who sacrifice here on earth will be rewarded tenfold, both on earth and in eternity, right? People give up their relationships. This isn't an uncommon thing in the church today. People have to give up their relationships to become a Christian all the time. Consider, consider a Muslim who wants to convert to Christianity. This is an entire change of their worldview and culture. They will be abandoned by everyone around them. And consider cults of Christianity that practice shunning, right? If someone wants to convert to Christianity, they will be shunned out of their community, right? It's not just an easy thing that people have to do or an easy decision that people make. There are costs to following Jesus. But Jesus tells us that there is also a reward. On earth, we gain the church. We lose many relationships, but we gain many relationships as well. Each and every one of you are my brother and sister in Christ. I have a family in Christ within the church, a support group who's there with me in my time of need, who's there to support me and give me each and everything that I need. Now, I'm also rewarded in the eternal sense, in the eternal sense that I have life with God. I have faith in God. I've been given that faith in God, and I have peace, joy, and calmness in my heart. And this is not to say that you won't go through depression or anxiety. That's not true. You will. You will deal with things like that, but in the eternal sense, you have a calmness because of your relationship with God. And that doesn't end. That goes into eternity where we are glorified for our sacrifices. So perhaps it's the case that you're here and you're a new believer. I applaud you on the decision you made. It's a, it's a great decision. Much, much needs to be done. Much needs to be recognized. But, but I have two messages for you. The first is don't listen to the lie that you can make yourself worthy or righteous. That is a lie that needs to be thrown away. We need to stop using it. The clean up your act, the start doing the right thing, the come to church so that you can be righteous is incorrect. It doesn't start with you. Rather, it starts by recognizing your brokenness and your own sinfulness in front of Christ. Only by being broken can you ever pursue righteousness. Only by being broken and breaking yourself down can you ever recognize the value of the cross. Now, the second message I have is do not listen to the lie of the American church. Sounds hostile. All I'm saying is know the cost. You've made a decision. Count the cost. If you think it's not worth it, right, count again maybe, but... I implore you to count the cost. Recognize the suffering that you're going to have to endure. 
Recognize what you're going to have to give up. Recognize that you might have to give up everything you own. You might have to give up relationships, and you might have to give up your life. And I encourage you to give them up now. Wrap your heart around the fact that you will have to give those things up in the end. On the day when you die, you will lose those things. So in your heart, get rid of those things. Detach your heart from the things in this world and set your eyes on something far better. Set your eyes on something else. Now, perhaps you're an older believer. Uh, perhaps you grew up in the church. You've been here your whole life. Uh, maybe you're a more mature Christian. Uh, maybe you would describe yourself as a good person, right? Somebody asks, yes, I'm a good person. Uh, my concern is that we get really good at caging up our sin and throwing a cloth over it. We get very good at telling people, I don't sin, right? I'm past that. We get very good at telling people, I, I don't have the weakness and brokenness that I had before I was saved, right? That was, we, we'll talk about our sin, but it's always, that was before I was saved, right? Uh, we won't talk about our sin after we're saved. We won't talk about the self-righteousness and pride that we bring into the church each and every week. That's what we've caged up, and that's what we're hiding from everyone else. Rather than doing that, I encourage you, let that show. Be broken. Be broken in front of Christ. Only when we expose that, only when we shine light onto that darkness in our hearts, are we able to bring any light into the situation. Only then are we able to change anything. Now, just as the ruler died, uh, just as the ruler did, uh, we must count the cost and make a decision. We, we have to decide, right? This, this is a decision that's being called for. Uh, and we have to decide which it is that we want. Uh, I shared this with a Bible study I did with Mike and Sertorius at their, their motel ministry. But there's, there's a story of sailors on, on a ship, right? And it was a common thing that uh, common lore during the time, I suppose. Uh, they would hear a beautiful, beautiful song coming from the distance, maybe in some fog, and they would be drawn to it, right? And it was these beautiful, beautiful women sitting on rocks singing this song, drawing them in. And the conclusion was that they would go towards this and they would wreck their ships and drown, right? That was, that was what the siren, what they were called, that's what they did. They drowned sailors. Uh, this is much like the appeal of the world. It draws us in and it draws us closer until we truly die and we truly drown. Now, there's a story of a man who overcame this song, right? He had his sailors tie him up to the mast of his ship. They drove past so he could hear the music. He had sailors put wax in their ears so they wouldn't hear. He heard the music, and how he responded the next time they passed was to take out his instrument and play a more beautiful song, to play something more appealing so that his sailors could hear that and desire that over the song of the siren. And this is much what Christ is asking us to do today. Christ is asking us to see the more beautiful picture that he has created, to see that his glory in heaven that he has for us is far more beautiful than anything the world could offer, to see the picture that Christ has for us is far better, is better for us, and it's better than the, in the end when compared to anything that this world could ever give us. Only when we recognize that glory, only when we see that beauty are we able to truly make this decision and deny everything in this world, and deny the things of this world in our lives. And that's what Christ is asking for when he tells the man, follow me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for allowing us to come into your house. God, to discuss your word. Lord, to truly follow you, Lord. 
I pray that you would help us, God, to be broken each and every day, Lord, to recognize our sinfulness in front of you, Lord, so that we might appeal to your grace and mercy. Help us to rely on you. Don't, don't allow us to rely on ourselves or any wealth that we have in this world. Instead, help us to rely wholly on you, to give up those things that might get in between us. Father God, I pray that your spirit would be with us and go with us this week, empowering us to live for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So you are dismissed, but tonight there are life groups. So meet with your facilitator to find out if you're meeting or if you don't have a life group at the Welcome Center, you can sign up for a group there as well. Have a good week.